Welcome to the Center for New American Security's National Security Startups podcast series, hosted by Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program, Ben Fitzgerald. Welcome, everyone, to the latest in our National Security Startups podcast series. We're joined today by Neelu Razi Howe, who is currently the Chief Strategy Officer at RSA, a major information security company. Neelu, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, by way of background, Nilu has a really diverse and, and amazing set of experiences across her career. She's been a management consultant at McKinsey. She's worked in venture capital at Paladin. She's been a chief strategy officer for a venture-backed startup at Endgame and is now running strategy at a, a major commercial information security technology company. Nilu, this is it's, it's a great opportunity for us to cover a pretty wide range of things. I just wonder if you could start out by telling us a little bit about RSA and the work that you do there. RSA is a pretty interesting company in the information security space. We're different than most. First of all, we've been around for 30 years, and we have a real history of innovating in some pretty important markets, uh, everything from commercial cryptography to two-factor authentication mm -hmm. to network forensics. We kind of blazed the path in those areas, and we continue to do that. We're a big and profitable company. We have 30,000 customers, including over 90% of the Fortune 100 um, pretty much 19 out of 20 in every major vertical. We have over a thousand technology partners. Um, our suite of products covers everything from network monitoring, analytics and forensic to identity access and assurance, governance, risk and compliance, uh, fraud, uh, and a great suite of anti-fraud products. And we also have one of the best incident response teams in the industry. Mm. So that really helps us stand out from the 1,500 or so companies that are competing today in the cybersecurity space and gives us a pretty unique perch from which to uh, participate in that market. So in terms of uh, th this conversation, I might start just by asking you to sort of hark back to a couple of years in the, in, the, in the past. You've invested in startups, you've led startups, you've acquired startups, you've competed against startups. When you think about that entire community, 1,500 competitors just in the cybersecurity space, what do you think that, that that entire community can provide to the Department of Defense? Why should the DOD want to work with startups? I'm glad you're starting with that. So I, I've been now at a big company for about 10 months. I spent mm -hmm. uh, over a quarter century working in the early stage um, startup space. So uh, this is a great question. And, and really, the the thing that startups can bring to government, to Defense Department, is innovation, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Disruption, rapid response, and agility, especially in markets that have near-term commercial applicability, mm -hmm. but where the government has a real need. Um, when you look at the federal budgets today, most of it is spent on acquisitions in O&M. R&D, again, especially R&D in markets where the commercial um, uh, companies are also feeling the pain, belong to the private sector. And from a mission perspective, it's, it's really a win-win for DOD to find a way, for government in general, to find a way to partner with these companies because 90% of our critical infrastructure is in the commercial sector. It's not owned by the government anymore. Yeah. And so if we're going to fulfill our national security mission, we need to enable these companies that are coming up with the most advanced solutions for the uh, issues that we're facing. So if you can partner effectively, we actually will do better in our national security mission. So that's a very um, thoughtful and, and, and articulate way of, of framing the opportunity. Thank you. <laughs> there is a big if at the end of it, though, which is the challenge, which is if, if the government can engage properly, 
So, and, and as, as much as we talk about the need for innovation, and, and I think the government, the DOD genuinely wants it. It's not necessarily comfortable doing the work required. It doesn't like being disrupted. It wants the cool technology, but doesn't want to do the work. So, so from your perspective, whether that's you know from a VC or running a startup or, or, or a major technology company, what are the big challenges or obstacles that you see in working with with, with, with DOD or, or getting those incentives aligned effectively? Yeah, and, and you're absolutely, by the way, right about this. I mean, we have a Secretary of Defense who is very committed to bringing technology in. Um, we've had it in the past, various folks um, inside DOD and the government broadly who are committed to bringing it in, and yet we're still not making it work. And the fundamental issue is uh, aircraft carrier procurement process and timelines don't work in the technology industry, and we simply haven't found a way to adjust how we do procurement, how we interact with companies, how we share information between you know an early stage company started by you know young whiskets who maybe have no background in government. So the long sales cycles with the government yep. require huge investment, mm -hmm. and that's really hard for a young company that should be bootstrapped. Um, customization, right? The government needs a solution that works for its systems, and its systems are often very, very different and sometimes outdated relative to what's going on in the commercial market. Yeah. And that customization can really lead startups astray. Classification and clearance is also a significant problem. In the startup space, you don't tend to have founding teams who have the clearances you need to have the conversations to really understand what the operational requirements are. And so the conversation is blocked both ways. On the one hand, the startups don't know what the needs are. On the other hand, the government um, agencies don't understand the art of the possible. And so a, a lot of that is sort of in the realm of, of business infrastructure and, and compliance and all that management that, that startups tend not to have. Um, now that you're part of a large business, how, how do you think about those those similar challenges and the DOD government marketplace? Is it similar dynamics? How is it, how is it the same? How is it different? So the dynamics are pretty much the same. I mean, the, the positive side, by the way, of having the government as a customer is that it can be an immense windfall, right? You have, if you can get into a program, you can have large contracts, you can have visibility into the revenues in the future. And that means a lot, so whether it's a small business or a yeah. big business. But whether you're at a large company or you're at a small company, it's the same set of questions, right? You are, every decision you make, um, it, it's a trade-off in terms of ROI. Yep. If, I put my, um, my, if I put my time, my energy, my dollars against you know, the government vertical, will I get the same return as I would if I put it against financial services, if I put yep. it against um, manufacturing, if I put it against retail? So you do face um, the same issues. Now, um, theoretically, the products are more mature in a large business, mm -hmm. and certainly at RSA, we, we have a very robust business with, with the government. Uh, a significant portion of our revenues um, come from the government space. We have a suite of products that works really well um, uh, in meeting government requirements. But even for us, as we think about um, investing our resources, um, you know, there's a massive commercial opportunity. Seventy some odd billion dollars are being spent in information security, and that number is only growing. Um, the the procurement cycles are very fast. The other thing for us that really matters, um, we uh, one of the things that makes RSA different, as I mentioned, is that we continue to innovate. 
And so uh, I recently met with, with a CISO of one of the major financial institutions. They're not only a large customer, but every time we come out with a new product or a no, new feature because we're a trusted partner, they raise their hands and say, hey, let us be your beta partner. Yeah. Let us help you define the roadmap. Let us test this in our systems and we'll give you feedback. Um, that conversation doesn't happen as easily with the government customer. So, um, you know, big businesses, small businesses, we, say, we face the same kinds of challenges. Um, we might have more resources and more ability to understand what the process looks like. Certainly at RSA, we have a lot of cleared people. We have folks who come out of the government, um, out of DOD, out of the intelligence community. So we, we know what those procurement processes are, mm-hmm. but we have the same challenge everyone else does. And so just following up on this, this idea about ROI, if you are a large diversified uh, business like RSA, you have a much larger market that you can prosecute in the commercial space. And you're probably going to get higher return on investment in a shorter time frame, which begs the question, why would you continue to focus on DOD? Um, and, and do you have to make trade, trade-offs where it's like, well, we would like to do more work with the Department of Defense, but we can't afford to apply resources to that when we could go after a, a different market? Well, so again, it comes back to the, the plus side of doing well with government agencies and the Department of Defense mm-hmm. is that... Um, you know, you have visibility into um, repeatable revenues over time. Mm-hmm. So if you can crack the code, um, then you can have a great business working with the government. You need to bring them solutions that work. And again, we have a pretty mature stable of products, so it's pretty easy for us to bring our products into the government. Um, the mission matters too. I mean, for a yeah. lot of us at RSA, the mission truly matters. Um, we, we want the government to succeed. It's really important for the government to succeed. Both commercial and government have to succeed for us to, to fulfill the, the national security mission. So um, we do invest in going after that market. But as I said, it's, it's kind of a zero-sum game at the end of the day. And yeah. um, you've got to make the right trade-offs and really, really think it through. And so just changing gears a little bit um, and thinking again about this, this challenge of ROI, one of the things that we see is that from an investor's perspective, um, that, that you could expect a much larger multiple um, or return on that investment for a company that's prosecuting a larger market rather than focusing purely on, on, on the Department of Defense. So when, when you were making investment decisions, did you value uh, pure defense-focused businesses differently to, to, to commercial? And, and did that make you more or less willing to, to do that? I'm just interested in your sort of investment theory and expectations. So there is absolutely a difference between how you value a company that's exclusively focused on providing solutions to the Defense Department versus a company that's going after a large commercial market opportunity. It's an order of magnitude difference in terms of the multiples that uh, any investor or acquirer would apply. You know, the difference between, you know, 0.5 to 1x revenues to... Mm -hmm you know, six to 100x revenues, um, depending on the type of market you're going after. But it doesn't mean that you write off companies that are starting in the federal government. So the the place that becomes really interesting is where there's a very large commercial opportunity, but the government is an early adopter. Yes. And companies that are going after after that, you, you would treat differently. Now, you need to make sure that that company is set up for success because they can go down a thousand rat holes trying to serve the government customer, right? The customization, as I said, um, uh, they can be led astray from the big commercial market opportunity. But if they're disciplined in terms of understanding what the big market opportunity is as they service the government customer, 
if they have the people and the support network, whether it's investor base or folks inside the company who, who come from government and understand how to have those conversations, have mm -hmm. the right clearances, know how to understand and interpret the operational needs, then you don't discount it. Um, yeah. So that's really sort of the, the difference between uh, a commercially focused company that um, is serving a government need versus an exclusively government-focused company. Because at the end of the day, that market just isn't that big. And for a small company to take on the big systems integrators, yeah. th there are very, 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 very few who've won that battle. Yeah, exactly. And it's fascinating your point about customization. It's not just product customization. It's your business model customization. You could very easily end up optimizing your, your accounting systems and all of that stuff um, to work for a government client and have a business which really is not structured to work for a commercial or in a commercial marketplace. Absolutely. I mean, the commercial market is incredibly dynamic. You have to be agile. You have to be able to adapt at the, as the needs change, especially in markets like the cybersecurity market. And so culturally, you know, mm -hmm. if you go down that, that sort of government service, it's really hard to tack toward the commercial market. Yeah. And, and so... The, the, the challenge for me as I think about that is, is I, I completely agree with you and, and the, I think the theoretical opportunity is clear. And we've seen a few instances now with startups that have done it. Endgame is an example. Palantir, I think, is probably the, the case in point. Um, SpaceX is doing interesting, interest, interesting stuff. And, and similarly, companies like Dataminer are, are able to play both sides of that. But we're also starting to see defense contractors go after some of those commercial or, or previously commercial opportunities. So I think this is particularly true in the cyber area. We've seen Raytheon doing some interesting um, mergers and acquisitions recently. Uh, Lockheed Martin has been making a play for, for, for commercial business. Do you see that trend continuing? And are they competing for the same opportunities or are they just look the same from the outside? And how do you think that's going to play out? So with respect to the systems integrators, they're facing a very harsh reality in terms of their core business with the yeah. government. It's shrinking. They don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. um, it's unlikely that they're going to be the lead innovators in these markets, but they certainly can make acquisitions in the market. Historically, they haven't been great acquirers. So when they've acquired sort of fast um, tech companies, I don't know too many cases where it's actually ended up working out positively for them. I think as they refocus now and realize that they've got to succeed in, in the commercial markets, mm -hmm. hopefully they'll adapt how they do business um, to be able to do that. Um, on the flip side of it, um, a company like Endgame is a great example of um, really serving uh, the government customer, but uh, against a very broad commercial market opportunity and a need that's, that, that's faced acutely in that market. So it's a good example um, of how you can be successful as, as a startup and then expand into the commercial market um, the way you need to in order to be successful. Palantir is an interesting example because they were born at a time when a lot of money was being spent by the DOD, right? I mean, we yeah. were losing two wars simultaneously. They were desperate for solutions in the field that really worked and gave us the advantage that we needed. So um, they, they, were, they came into being at a time when uh, there was an acute need and a lot of money going after it, and they managed to go after that opportunity um, really well. I think we need to, uh, this. there's a lot of areas, SpaceX is another example. There's some really good examples of areas, again, where um, the government has a need. Cyber is is a really good one, but that same need is felt in the commercial market. Yep. Um, and hopefully, 
everyone will start to work better together, the startups, the systems integrators, and the government. That becomes the win-win-win scenario. So I'm I'm going to ask you a slightly dangerous hypothetical question here. You've you've run no, no. You, you've you've <laughs> run you've run strategy for two businesses recently, and you've provided uh, professional advice to many. If you were running strategy at a major defense company, how would you capitalize on the opportunities associated with startups? DoD DoD is very interested in them. Uh, we've seen some uh, tension. The the defense uh, specialists feel that they can be innovative. Um, which I think there's there's some truth to that. Um, but if you were in one of those big organizations, how, how would you help them capitalize on these opportunities? So theoretically, defense yep. contractors can play a really interesting role in this process, right? They have the reach, they have the relationships, mm -hmm. they have the contracts, they have the clearances. They can actually become the clearinghouse for innovation exactly. to get products very quickly into the government um, and really get, I mean, they've, already broken through all the structural conflict that early stage companies face. So if you could, as an LSI, bring the different parties together and use that collaborative power you have in terms of understanding commercial, understanding government, having huge reach, and really create a greater visibility amongst the players and a way, um, a, uh, uh, an avenue to get these disruptive um, uh, products into mm -hmm. the government. I think that would be phenomenal. Um, you have to figure out how to w make it work economically for everybody. Yeah. Um, but that's really the power that, that, that those system integrators, integrators can bring until we fundamentally solve the bigger problem, which is how do you fix the procurement process <laughs> fundamentally from the ground up, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, so it's fascinating. I, the, the challenge right now is that um, as a function of the procurement system, the DOD is not necessarily... Um, creating opportunities for those lead systems integrators, the LSIs, to do that. So, so they, they they could bring these companies through, but then you have this issue of, is there a requirement for what they're doing? How are they going to bring it in? The other challenge is, as as someone who who ran a small business, wanting to work with some of those those guys, the the current model is, DoD would lay out a requirement, the lead systems integrator would win the business, and then they would flow it down through their network of subcontractors. It was a sort of um, paternalistic kind of system, which is a little bit different when you're talking about bottom-up innovation. So figuring out that dynamic is going to be challenging. And I think we're seeing instances of some of those um, big systems integrators looking to do that. The question is the economics and the model. How do we, how do we make that work? Absolutely. Do you have a solution? If I did that, we would not be doing the, okay. we'd not be doing this podcast. I'd be off doing that, but uh, we're working on it. We'll come up with a we'll come up with a really interesting report, and then hopefully everyone will be able to execute on that. Um, so, the, the the challenge that we that we see with all of this stuff, though, is it, it comes back to how the DoD can make itself more appealing. And and in this context, obviously, we're thinking about about this for startups. It's true for all sorts of businesses. But I'd just be interested in your thoughts on, on how the DoD can make itself more appealing a, a, across the board. Um, you've already talked about some important things in terms of uh, leading edge problems, that kind of stuff. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on how, how, how we can create an environment where everyone can capitalize on those natural advantages. So this fundamentally feels like a Groundhog Day question to yeah, me because I it's, I mean, it's since I've been in Washington working with technology companies and with government agencies, we've been asking this question and yeah. somehow, regardless of the commitment from 
the top. And again, we have a commitment from Ash Carter, from Secretary of Defense Ash Carter. Yep. We can't seem to solve it. So, um, I mean, the answers are, are simple, but the implementation, the execution of That's them right. is, is incredibly complicated, right? You have yeah. to create a better process for sponsoring companies for clearances so that the conversations can happen. You have to create a more agile acquisition process because we are, in the private sector, we're innovating. We use agile software development. I mean, you know, versions happen every few weeks sometimes, which yeah. is just something the government doesn't know how to deal with. We've got to solve the language barrier between the two communities. And by the way, it brings us to a, a, a real talent issue we have. Mm. I think we've got to, and, I, and there are certain agencies right now, DHS is doing this, um, that are creating a process for people to be able to go back and forth between government and private sector. Mm -hmm. I think that becomes critical because that's how you solve the language barrier. That's how you solve the cultural barrier. That's how you create better understanding for each other's processes and each other's priorities. So if you had a way for government, um, uh, you know, talent people in government to leave, go work in the commercial sector for some period of time and then come back um, without any penalty, yeah. And vice versa, have a way for bringing commercial people into government and then they can go back to their day jobs. I think you can start solving the problem, creating um, that deep level of understanding between the two communities so that um, uh, we're not uh, wary of each other, yeah. but actually understand what makes each of us tick and why we have to operate the way we do. You know, why transparency matters so much in government acquisition process, why... Um, return on investment matters so much, yep. you know, for a business, um, that becomes, that, that could be a pathway to doing that. It makes so much sense. Even from the perspective of allowing people to be able to afford to do what they want to do. I think about this frequently in sort of the context of this third offset strategy that we're talking about with future technologies being all about artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the DOD wants to get into this space. If you think about what, uh, someone coming out of grad school can earn and the general metric is it's about the same ballpark as a first round NFL draft pick <laughs> and then you think about what senior executives in the Pentagon make which is maybe a third of that if you're lucky how, how, how can we hope to compete effectively unless we let people um, uh, have access to those income opportunities at the same time, would you rather be working on machine learning, which figures out how to how to get someone to click on something for buying shoelaces on the internet, or would you like to do machine learning for how to how to help um, someone uh, running a, an HADR mission? It's it, it becomes very different. That's absolutely right, and I think there's opportunities. Well, I know there's opportunities in the government that doesn't exist in the commercial sector, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have title authority. Yep. In in the commercial sector, so being able to work in cyber with an agency that has title authority to do things that are illegal um, is pretty damn cool. Exactly. Taking those lessons to help protect infrastructure is really important. So uh, there's a way to do this. I, I have faith. <laughs> and just, just for some of our listeners who, who don't live in the arcane worlds of, 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 of title authority, could you just unpack for, for a minute what you mean um, by that? Well, so Department of Defense, the intelligence community uh, are allowed to do um, offensive operations um, and commercial sector is not. Um, and the ability to do that uh, uh, lets you, um, you know, gives you visibility into how adversaries behave. Mm -hmm. um, so if your job is to protect critical infrastructure against adversaries rather than, you know, studying papers, what better thing than to have 
participated in that mission at some point in your career. That's right. And so if you've been able to do that, you would actually be in, you would have the opportunity to take a much more senior position or a, um, or, or a more highly paid position. It makes a lot of sense. And then if we can get those people back. Exactly. That would be great. So sort of following up on this point about um, different perceptions of, of, of folks, um, again, you've, you've, you've been able to look at this problem from multiple vantage points. How do you think the different groups, the different actors perceive each other or misperceive or misunderstand each other, whether that's DOD to startups or defense industry to uh, technology companies? What are the dynamics you see there? So in general, I, I do think that there is a relatively good understanding between mm -hmm. both parties um, and both sides have very good intentions, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think sort of at, at a very high level, everyone gets it. We know what the government mission is, and we know, generally speaking, that to succeed in the commercial world, you have to be profitable <laughs> at some point <laughs> yeah. in your career. Yeah. Um, um, but the biggest issue is that there isn't finger feel between the two communities in terms of what that actually means, right? So uh, what does it really mean to uh, be a DOD in the acquisition process, in the procurement process? How do you deploy technologies? What's the reality of these massive systems that are incredibly complicated? Um, what does it feel like to own a PL and to be yeah. uh, you know, accountable to a board that can fire you mm -hmm. if you don't meet your numbers? And that's again goes back to that talent conversation. If we could find a way to have uh, more exchange between the two groups um, and have better finger feel of exactly what this means for, for each side, not just theoretical understanding, I think that can help solve it. But I think at a high level, you know, people get what the government's supposed to do. People get what you know the the role that private industry is supposed to serve. We need to get that finger feel. Yeah, and and I mean, there's this common theme throughout this entire podcast series, and 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 this conversation more broadly that everyone kind of knows what we need to do. <laughs> the issue is how do we actually execute, and and how do we do that in a way that will be successful, given that we've been talking about this for decades and not a lot has necessarily changed, which is, it makes me both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. So I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, so the, the last question that I would like to ask, ask you, Nilo, is just about advice. You have a fantastic range of experience, um, and I would like to offer up some free advice to our listeners who would otherwise not be able to, to, to get access to this. What advice do you have for folks who are running or thinking about founding startups that are in the national security space or have a national security focus? What are those first few steps that can set you on the right path instead of hedging you in when you shouldn't be? Um, so first I would say really think long and hard <laughs> about why you're doing it mm -hmm. um, and make sure that it doesn't take you off of um, your core business, um, which I would hope is solving a very large commercial market problem. Uh, you need to surround yourself with people who understand how the government works, how the government procurement process works how you get into programs, which is really how you sort of get that long-term visibility into revenues. There are investors who understand that incredibly well on both coasts, by the way. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about the Valley. Um, there, there are amazing investors on the East Coast um, who are very, very good at helping companies. And these are typical venture funds. I'm not just talking about InQtel. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there's a lot of funds where uh, they have a good history and good relationships back into um, back into, into, into government. 
Having said that, it's, it's really tough. There are very few companies that have been able to start their business um, focusing on the government customer and have um, managed to succeed over time. Um, the, the commercial market is just a significantly larger market. Um, don't take your eye off the ball with respect to that. Um, I, again, I do think solving this becomes really, really important. And I have faith that if we are aligned and committed to it, we can do it. I, I have this, uh, Winston Churchill has this awesome quote, success is the ability to go from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> Um, we can get to success no matter mm -hmm. how many times we fail at this and getting to success is really important. We're not there yet. So for mm -hmm. any startup that's really focusing on selling into DOD, you've got to be really careful and you've got to be really wary and you've got to make sure you've got the right advisors. Um, but if you have a solution that's going to improve the national security mission, don't give up on it. It's, it's really important. I agree. Um, and I was going to ask you another question, but I don't think that we'll have a more uplifting end note than this is an important thing to do, which I completely agree with. So on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Nilu, and uh, good luck with uh, uh, making RSA the huge success that it should be. It's great to be here. To hear more from the National Security Startup Series, go to startups.cnas.org or search for CNAS on iTunes or SoundCloud.